We're going to be in Exodus chapters 32 to 34 this morning. So if you've got a Bible, get over to Exodus 32. I have a co-worker by the name of Trey Corey. Some of you know Trey, and uh, I told him I was going to be sharing this this morning. Uh, Trey is a huge fan of Dr. Pepper. I don't know if anybody else in this room is a big Dr. Pepper person, few people, uh, but Trey uh, is such a fan of Dr. Pepper that I have seen him at parties or events bring his own Dr. Pepper uh, with the meal, to bring along with the meal, just in case there was no Dr. Pepper available, uh, right? So uh, we used to give him a hard time about this at staff events or lunches or social events or whatever. And so one day we were having a staff lunch and uh, whoever had ordered the food and the drinks had ordered um, those generic colas, you know, from Sam's or Walmart or wherever. Uh, so, you know, the ones that just say cola. And uh, there was one that it's Dr. Thunder. Some of you are familiar perhaps with Dr. Thunder. It's the, it's the generic substitute for Dr. Pepper. And, and Trey came in and he saw Dr. Thunder and he goes, nope, 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 not going to do it. He went over uh, to a convenience store or something like that and bought himself a bottle of Dr. Pepper and came back to the lunch. And we said, Trey, man, come on. It's not that big a deal. For just one meal, can't you swap them out? Drink the Dr. Thunder, it's not going to kill you. He goes, no, I cannot. I need the real thing. And so somebody said, Trey, I'll bet that you couldn't even tell the difference in taste between Dr. Pepper and Dr. Thunder in a blind taste test. And he says, I absolutely could. 110% I could tell the difference. So, of course, we we had to do it, right? So at this lunch, we set up a blind taste test. We got a couple of Dixie cups. We put a little bit of Dr. Pepper in one, a little bit of Dr. Thunder in the other, and we wrote in very small letters on the bottom what each one was so we would know. And we set Trey down with a blindfold, and we had him drink from each cup, and he goes, that's the Dr. Pepper. And we turned it over, and he was wrong. It was Dr. Thunder. And he says, okay, okay, okay. You, you guys, you, you messed with me. You need to let me wash my palate in between. Give me another shot. And I'll nail it. So we go, okay. So we get a little cup of water along with it. He does it again, washes his palate in between. That's the Dr. Pepper. And he was wrong. Again, second time in a row. And we said, see, see, don't you understand, Trey? You can't tell the difference. So why don't you just switch over to Dr. Thunder? You'll probably save hundreds of dollars a year. And he goes, no, I can't do it. Never going to change. Never going to switch over. And here's what he said. He said, the reason is this. I'm convinced if I drink a little bit of Dr. Thunder, I can't tell the difference. But if I were to drink an entire bottle, the difference would become clearer over time because Dr. Pepper is the best. Now, I'm convinced that's hogwash, right? I'm convinced he couldn't actually tell the difference in a blind taste test. But the point he was making is one that applies to the subject we're talking about this morning. Because what he was saying is this. There's an authentic version. And for a little while, the substitute might hold up. Right For a little period of time, you might not be able to tell the difference between the knockoff brand and the real thing, but over time, you're going to tell that one is inferior. Over time, you're going to be able to tell that one doesn't satisfy you like the real thing. The nation of Israel, in our passage this morning, is going to learn that that's true of idols. Idols are basically knockoff gods. 
What idols do is they promise us life, and they promise us security, and they promise us control. And in the short run, you might not be able to tell that much of a difference. In fact, in the short run, run a, a counterfeit God, a knockoff God, might seem to be better because you can control it. Because it promises to give you what you want. But in the long run, idols lie. In the long run, they prove to be counterfeit and false. If you remember where we are in the book of Exodus, last week we talked about the Ten Commandments. And of course, the first two commandments, number one, you're not supposed to have any other gods besides the one true God, right? Number one is he's the only God. Number two is you're not supposed to make any idols, any images that represent God. Those are the top two. We're going to hit Exodus 32 to 34. And what we're going to see is that almost right away, the Israelites break the second one in a major way. They start making an idol. That they say, hey, it's, it's good enough to be just like God. In fact, we'll call it God. And what we'll see is that it promises life, but it only brings destruction. Now, I know that you're listening to this and you're probably thinking, what does this have to do with me, right? Because you don't have any idols, right? You know that. Your house, if I were to come into your house, there are no statues of Baal or Marduk or the frog god of Egypt or whatever. You don't have those in your house, right? But what we're going to see as we walk through is the idol was never the statue. Okay, the god they were worshiping was never the statue, But what they were worshiping was what the statue represents. And I promise you that just like me, your heart is prone to idolatry. I promise you that just like me, there is something that we could pinpoint this morning that you're going to say, God owes me X, Y, or Z. Or, I want to have God, but not if he steps into this area of my life. Or, I want a God who will give me what I want. And there's some area of your heart that you say, if I didn't have this, or if I don't get this, I can't trust God. That's idolatry. And what we'll see is that we all chase Him, and they promise life, but they deliver death. Come with me as we look at Exodus chapter 32. I'm going to start in verse 1. Now when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people assembled about Aaron and said to him, Come, make us a God who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Aaron said to them, tear off the gold rings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. Then all the people tore off the gold rings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. He took this from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made it into a molten calf. And they said, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Now when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to Yahweh. 
So the next day they rose early and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. First thing we're going to see from this passage is this, that idols always lie. Okay, idols always lie. Now, now it's interesting, you read this passage and on the surface of it, it seems crazy. Right? Here they are. They've just been led out of Egypt by the powerful hand of God. God had demonstrated all of his power over the gods of Egypt. He had parted the Red Sea and he had walked them right through. Moses is now on top of Mount Sinai. Now I want you to imagine this. Moses is on top of the mountain. And they can see the glory of God from where they are at the bottom of the mountain. In other words, the mountain is shiny, bright with the glory of God. Moses has been up there for about 40 days at this point, a little over a month. And all of a sudden they go, hey, Aaron, we don't know what happened to literally that fellow Moses. Remember that guy Moses that used to be around? We don't know where he went. He's probably dead up there. So why don't you make us a new God who will go before us? And see, here's the promise that the idol makes, is that the idol will go before you. You can carry it in your hand, and you can cause that God to work on your timetable. But but it seems crazy on the surface of it. What's going on in their hearts? Here's what's going on. Impatience, lack of control, and fear. I read an article just a, a week or two ago about some passengers on an airplane. They were at New York's JFK airport. They were supposed to depart at about 3.30 in the afternoon. But after they loaded them onto the airplane and they were sitting on the tarmac, there was a huge delay. The, ground, or the crew couldn't show up or didn't show up on time. They had all kinds of weather problems. They sat in that airplane for eight hours until they finally took off. And in the course of those eight hours, the people got increasingly upset, right? Some of you have perhaps been in a situation at least a little bit like this. I've never sat on a plane for eight hours. I've sat on them for an hour and a half, two hours, where you can't go back into the airport, but you can't go where you're headed, right? And it's hot, and there's not a lot of food. There's not a lot of water. You're crammed in a little tube with people you don't know and already are beginning to dislike. And what happens? You get angry. You get stressed. You're you're going, when are we going to get there? Why can't they take off? What else is going on in your mind? I'm out of control, right? And so on this airplane, people began to stand up and physically fight with one another. They had to call the police to calm everything down because it was getting out of hand. Now put yourself, if you can, for just a minute in that kind of a scenario. How do you feel? Afraid, out of control, ready to roll but you can't go. That's how the Israelites are feeling after 40 days in the desert, right? Some of you, you have a hard time keeping your kids under control while you're waiting for 30 minutes at a restaurant after church. Try managing them for 40 days in the desert, right? There's no iPads, there's no iPhones, there's no workout equipment, there's no bouncy house, there's nothing. But you and all these people, and miles of desert. And God has promised you to take you to the promised land. But here you sit, and Moses is up there doing who knows what on the mountain. Now, what's he doing? He's actually receiving engraved tablets from God with the covenant that God wants to make with the people, right? But they don't hear God's voice. 
And so they say, hey, Aaron, make us a God because that one's left us. That one's going to kill us. Make us a God who will take us into Egypt, right? And here's what's amazing about it is uh, Aaron goes, okay, everybody take the rings off, right? The gold rings, all your jewelry. Now, remember, where did they get the jewelry from? They got the jewelry from Egypt, when God delivered them from Egypt, he said, now everybody asks for your neighbor for gold and silver and jewelry. So they're wearing evidence of God's deliverance from Egypt and they turn it into an idol, right? And what is the idol promise? Again, in the ancient world, an idol itself was never the God, but they believed that the idol could contain the God. The idea is I have a God, he lives out there somewhere in heaven and I can't necessarily control everything he does unless, here's how idolatry works, I will make a little statue of my God and I will put it in a little temple and I'll feed it and I'll give it everything it needs and in return, I can carry it around with me and I can control it. So that God up there on the mountain, he is not going on my timetable. Aaron, make us one who will do what we want. And then it says the people, they sat down and they rose up and they ate and they drank and they began to play. And that word to play in the Hebrew language, all too often it is used in the context of sexual immorality, right? Aaron declares, hey, there's a feast to Yahweh. He calls this God Yahweh. He's not saying we're worshiping a different God. He's saying we are worshiping the God who led us out of Egypt. And and here he is in the form of a golden calf. And the people begin to worship him, but not as God had said they should worship, but as they wanted to worship. And see, this is what an idol is. Fundamentally, here's how I would define an idol. An idol is a God that we create that promises us freedom, certainty, or control over our lives. Idols represent our own desires more than they represent the nature of God. Idols represent our own desires more than they represent the nature of God, right? And so these idols, what do they promise? They promise the good life. They say, look, if you just feed the idol, you build it a temple, you do what you're supposed to do, the idol will do what you want. You can worship the idol in a way that makes you happy. The idol will give you things that you want on your timetable, right? Here's the deal. They still said they were worshiping God, Right, and as I thought about it this week, I thought, man, that really, this concept of idolatry, it is, I make a God in my image and I say, that's God, right? And I want to worship God, but I want to worship God who gives me what I want. I want to worship a God who lets me worship like I want. I want to worship a God who lets me use my time and my body and my energy in the way I want, right? That's idolatry. And it is the predominant religion of our world. It's the predominant religion of our nation. And dare I say, it might be the predominant religion, even of Christians, who say, I I worship God. I worship Jesus. Right? But I want a God who will let me do what I want. For example, with my body and with my life. Right? So I read a survey this week from the Barna Institute that said among Protestant Christians who say, I worship Jesus Christ, 42% say God approves of pornography. 51% say God approves of sex outside of marriage. Right? You see what we've done? We've said, I worship God, but a version of God 
that approves of my choices. A number of Christians, maybe in this room, maybe not, would say, I worship a God who wants to give me a lot of money, who wants to make my kids successful, right? In theological terms, we call that the prosperity gospel, right? That the good news is that if I worship God and I do the right things and I believe enough and I pray the right prayers, God will give me an output that is success and financial security and my kids will go to the right schools and I will have everything I want. Right? Or maybe we, instead we worship a God of a political party or tribalism. Right, where we say, you know what, I want, I want a God, a representation of God who will stand before my country, who will stand before my church and go before me and save this nation. And so when, when, when push comes to shove, the reality is if these gods out here begin to fall, I find myself stressed, uncertain, fearful, and I'll do anything to stake my claim with my political tribe. Or maybe my idol is religion itself. I say, what I want is is a God who claims an hour each week and a few bucks in the plate. And as long as I feed him, he lets me do what I want throughout the rest of the week. I don't have statues in my house. I have idols in my heart. They promise the good life. Right, and we all have them. When you begin to ask these questions, what are my hopes, my fears, my dreams? What are the things that I can't live without? What are the things that if I didn't have, I'd begin to question the goodness of God in my life? You're beginning to pinpoint an idol. They promise us the good life, but see, here's, here's the problem. They only deliver death and destruction. They lie. They lie. I want you to see what happens as we continue in our story. Chapter 32, starting in verse 7. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Go down at once, for your people whom you brought up from the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have quickly turned aside from the way which I commanded them. They have made for themselves a molten calf and have worshipped it and have sacrificed to it and said, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. The Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, they are an obstinate people. Now then let me alone, that my anger may burn against them, and that I may destroy them, and I will make of you a great nation. Now we're going to skip for the moment down to verse 15. We'll come back to these verses in between. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets which were written on both sides. They were written on one side and the other. The tablets were God's work, and the writing was God's writing engraved on the tablets. Now when Joshua heard the sound of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there's a sound of war in the camp. But Moses said, it's not the cry, the sound of the cry of triumph, nor is it the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing I hear. It came about as soon as Moses came near the camp that he saw the calf and the dancing and Moses' anger burned and he threw the tablets from his hands and shattered them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf which they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it over the surface of the water and made the sons of Israel drink it. Then Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you have brought such great sin upon them? Aaron said, 
Do not let the anger of my Lord burn. You know the people yourself that they are prone to evil. For they said to me, make a God for us who will go before us. For this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. I said to them, whoever has any gold, let them tear it off. So they gave it to me and I threw it in the fire and out popped this calf. Now when Moses saw that the people were out of control, for Aaron had let them get out of control to be a derision among their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered together to him. He said to them, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, every man of you put his sword upon his thigh and go back and forth from gate to gate in the camp and kill every man his brother and every man his friend and every man his neighbor. So the sons of Levi did as Moses instructed and about 3,000 men of the people fell that day. See, here's what happens is they make an idol to bring them life but it only brings them death and destruction. It reminds me a little bit of how in my own life, I'll confess, I have a weakness for nacho cheese Doritos, right? I don't buy them and put them in my house very often because if I buy the family size bag, I promise you the only family member that will eat that entire bag is me. And I love them, and they taste good. And boy, they go down tasting so, so good. But it's not actually food, right, is it? Looks like food. Tastes a lot like food. But it doesn't nourish that way. It promises sustenance. And in the long run, it delivers me pain and sadness. Right? That's what these idols do. All right, Isaiah chapter 44 talking about those who make idols, says this, the idolater feeds on ashes. You see that? He thinks it's going to taste good. He gets a mouthful of ashes. A deceived heart has turned him aside. And he cannot deliver himself nor say, is there not a lie in my right hand? The idol lies. What happens to the nation of Israel? Whether strife, first of all, between Moses and Aaron, right? Aaron's heart is clearly deceived. I mean, what a great little speech. You guys caught it. Look, the people are bad. You were gone a long time, and it's not my fault if I tossed in the gold and out popped a calf, right? It's such a toddler excuse. I don't know if you've ever come home, and you walk into the garage. Maybe you see the toolbox open, And there are tools all over and then you walk into the living room or the kitchen and there's your hammer and there's a screwdriver. And then you walk into the next room and there are little holes in the wall. And you show up to your four-year-old or whatever and you go, what happened? What'd you do? I didn't do nothing, right? I didn't do anything. Now, wait a second. I see the hammer. It's on the floor. I see the holes. There are nails in your fists right now. Wasn't me, right? I didn't do it. And besides, you left the toolbox unlocked. It's your fault. That's what Aaron says. And so the leadership of Israel experiences a rift. We also see the anger of God burn against the people because they've departed from him. And he knows that the best life possible is found in him. Not because he promises easy prosperity or an easy path, but because he promises in the long run, 
to deliver them into a nation and into a land of milk and honey where there'll be a kingdom of priests. So God's anger burns. The other thing that happens, notice Moses sees this and he throws the tablets on the ground and they smash into a thousand pieces. That's not simply Moses being impetuous and angry. It's a symbol. God made a covenant. We've broken it. There's a rift in our relationship with God. And then there's death and destruction in the camp. Those who were apparently most responsible find themselves on the receiving end of a sword or those who refused to turn, right? Everybody in the nation was responsible, including Aaron. Notice Aaron doesn't die. He doesn't incur the death penalty. The entire nation doesn't incur the death penalty, even though it seems that the entire nation was involved. But there are 3,000 men who seem set in their ways and they incur the death penalty for leading the people astray. So what happens? The idol promises life, but it only brings death. It only brings destruction. I'm going to guess that some of you in this room right now, you're facing that reality right now. There is something in your life or someone in your life that you have built up into an idol. Maybe it's a career. You say, yeah, I will worship God as long as, as long as I continue to advance in my career, as long as my professional reputation remains intact, as long as our family's finances stay the way that I want them to, I can trust God and believe in him. I worship a God who also owes me something over here. And maybe what's beginning to happen is it's starting to crumble. And what promised you life is bringing you pain. Or maybe it's in your marriage. Because of the betrayal of a spouse or or simply an imperfect spouse like all of us have. Or maybe it's your kids who are struggling where you hoped they'd succeed. Who are rebelling when you prayed for them to know God. And you begin to say, well, well, God, I placed all my weight on that. Are you still good? What are you doing? Idols always lie. Right? In fact, it's only really good things, by the way, that that make good idols. Right? It's only really good things that make good idols. Right? Gold, man, fantastic thing. Cows, fantastic. A leader, who will go before you into the land, man, that's an amazing thing. Bad things don't make great idols. The best idols are things that we love. Good things that we turn into ultimate things. And they can creep up even in places that we don't expect. In fact, they usually do. I was remembering my first few years uh, in vocational ministry. I was the college pastor here at Grace, and uh, I had come straight out of seminary, and I I was so excited about what I was going to get to do, that I was going to get to lead and teach college students. And so I I took the reins of this college ministry, and there were two services at the time. Thing was just busting at the seams. 
And I stepped in, and within a matter of about six months, I had effectively somehow killed one of the services. They went from like 350 people to like 12 Right, and every week I would go in and I'm like, man, how am I going to muster the energy and the enthusiasm to speak to 12 people? And where'd the rest of them go? And what did I say? And what did I do? And I'm not kidding, it began to take me to a place of despair and sadness. And every week I would walk in and I would, I would count, are there more or less people than there were last week? And if there are fewer, if there are 11, man, where'd the other guy go? Does anyone have his number? (laughs) And I was so stressed because in my heart, what had happened, I had begun to believe if I work hard, if I speak well, if I do the right things, God owes me growth. And I didn't even know it was in there until it let me down. And I'm going to guess that the same thing For many in this room, the same thing's happening in your life and your heart. Idols always lie. Right, but here's the good news. We find the good news in the the rest of the passage, and it's this. God is always true. God is always true. I want to read a few more verses for us as we continue in our story. I'm going to go back down to chapter 32, starting in verse 11. God has just said, look, leave me alone. Let me destroy the people and I'll start over again with you, Moses. Verse 11, then Moses entreated the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your anger burn against your people whom you have brought out from the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians speak saying with evil intent, he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to to destroy them from the face of the earth. Turn from your burning anger and change your mind about doing harm to your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by yourself and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heavens and all this land of which I have spoken, I will give to your descendants and they shall inherit it forever. So the Lord changed his mind about the harm which he said he would do to his people. Now drop down to chapter 33 for a moment. After all of this judgment on the nation of Israel, then the Lord spoke to Moses, depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up from the land of Egypt to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your descendants, I will give it. In other words, you guys get to go. I'm not going to kill you. Verse 2, I will send an angel before you and I will drive out the Canaanite, the Amorite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. Good news so far until this, for I will not go up in your midst because you are an obstinate people and I might destroy you on the way. When the people heard this sad word, they went into mourning and none of them put on his ornaments. And then verse 12, then Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you yourself have not let me know whom you will send with me. Moreover, you have said, I have known you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, I pray you, if I have found favor in your sight, let me know your ways that I may know you so that I may find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence shall go with you, and I will give you rest. Then he said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not lead us up from here. What's going on? Well, this is a tough set of passages. In the face of God's anger, 
He says to Moses, he says, look, I'm just going to wipe them out and I'll start over with you. And Moses says, now wait a second. That's not what I know about you. You made a promise. You are a compassionate God. And this is a tough passage, right? Because it says what? It says God changed his mind. God relented and we go, wait a second. God changed his mind. How does something like that happen? And the answer is, I don't know for sure, but here's, here's what I do know about the passage. Okay, if God had wanted to destroy the people, if he'd really wanted to destroy the people, you know what he would have done? He would have destroyed them. Right, if God had really wanted to destroy the people, he would not have allowed this opening for Moses to intercede. You see that? If God issues a warning, It's because he's eager to forgive. And what I find fascinating about these passages, both of them, is Moses only appeals to God on the basis of things that God has already said. Right? God had already made a promise to them to lead them into the land. God had already told them, I'm a compassionate and gracious God, full of forgiveness to the thousandth generation. And Moses says, God, this is who you are. Are, right? And so often what we have, we have this in prophetic uh, texts as well, in the prophets of the Old Testament, is God will issue a warning that sounds like it's a done deal, but it's a warning. Let me give you an analogy. Some of you perhaps as parents, at some point in the face of your own kids' disobedience and craziness, you have said to them these words, you are cruising for a bruising. Right? Now, you may not hopefully mean that literally, Right, But what are you saying? If your course doesn't change, there's going to be pain. Right, There's other ways to say that. I ran across a a website where they had multiple other ways to express this. You are heading for a shredding. You are flirting with a hurting. Angling for a strangling. Beckoning for a reckoning. Right? What are you getting at? Well, there's no direct statement in there that there's any wiggle room, right? You're headed for destruction. But there's an implied warning, isn't there? And an implied hope. But if you change, if you turn around, if you do it differently, there could be hope. This happens all the time in the Old Testament. What we see is that God is actually eager to forgive, even in the face of our idolatry. Some of you are familiar with the story of Jonah. Everybody knows of Jonah and the fish, but to put it in broader context, the book of Jonah, it's this great story where God says to this prophet of Israel, Jonah, he says, hey, I want you to go to the Ninevites, go to Assyria, and I want you to tell them, get 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. And Jonah says, no, thank you. And he gets on a boat and he tries to go the exact opposite direction, right? There's a storm, the soldiers throw him in the, or the uh, sailors throw him in the sea. A fish swallows him, spits him up on the land, and God says again to Jonah, hey, I've got an idea. Why don't you go to Nineveh and tell the people that in 40 days I'm going to destroy them? And Jonah finally goes, okay. So he goes. And I used to read that as a kid, and I thought maybe Jonah didn't want to go because he was afraid of the Ninevites, right? He just had this this fear like we do about sharing the gospel or whatever it is, right? That's not what's happening. Right, because what happens is Jonah goes through the city and he walks around. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed, right? And he says it takes him, I don't know, like three days to get through the city. And after he finishes this message, the king of Assyria, you remember what he does? 
He turns to his people and he goes, hey, I've got an idea. Let's repent. Let's change. Let's put on sackcloth and ashes and ask God to spare us. Who knows? Maybe he's a gracious God. And so they do it and God spares them. And Jonah goes and has a pout outside the city. Why didn't he want to go? Well, he says it right there at the end. He looks at God and he goes, I knew it. This is why I didn't want to go. You know why? Jonah wanted them dead. He says, I knew this is who you are. You are a gracious and compassionate God. Where did he get that from? From God's statement connected to the second commandment about idols. Right? Here's what's fascinating. God says to them, hey, don't make any idols of me. Don't do it. And then he says, I am a gracious and compassionate God. I'll punish to the third and fourth generations, but I will lavish my compassion and mercy to the thousandth generation. You see what's going on? Right there in the commandment, God says, by the way, I've got an idea that you're not going to keep this one very long and you're going to need grace. God is eager to forgive because he's always true to his word. He's always compassionate, always gracious. God is always faithful to his promises. Moses, ultimately, all he does is he says, God, remember, these are your people. You made a promise, right? God hasn't forgotten the promise. But he gives Moses an opportunity to intercede. And he responds to Moses' intercession because he's faithful to his promises. When you get to the New Testament, you see this principle. It's interesting. It comes out in 1 John chapter 5. John says, and we know that the Son of God has come, that is, Jesus is here, and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true and in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. And then he ends his book and he says, little children, guard yourselves from idols. Isn't that interesting? John says, look, here's where life is found. You want to know where life is found? It is found in a true God. What is God promised? That all who believe in Jesus Christ, that Jesus died and rose again, you will have eternal life. And Jesus has said, look, I came to give you abundant life. Right? That doesn't mean more money. That doesn't mean more successful kids or a better career. What it means is that I will live with the joy of knowing that I am living in the will of God, knowing that I am doing what I was made for. Right? And John says, that's the God you serve. He's true to his promises. You can trust that in the long run, he's promised to bring you into a kingdom flowing with milk and honey. And then he ends and he says, hey, you guard yourself from idols. You guard yourself from that creeping desire in your heart to make good things ultimate things. Because only God is true and faithful to his promises and knows what's best. And God is gracious beyond measure. Exodus chapter 34, it's, it's a beautiful passage. I wish I had more time to go into it this morning, but Moses asks God, he says, hey God, show me your glory. And why does Moses ask that? Moses asks because he says, God, I, I want to know for sure that you're not going to destroy us. I want to know for sure that you're with us, right? And God says, hey, Moses, I will appear to you, but nobody who looks at my face uh, can live, so I'm going to show you my back. I don't know what that means. But he says, I'm going to make all my goodness pass before you. And then look at this, chapter 34, starting in verse 6. 
As the Lord passed by in front of him, he proclaimed this. Listen, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. I love God repeats his statements that he made with the second commandment. I'm still here. Gracious to the thousandth generation. And this is remarkable because really the people have violated God's law in a major way. And yet he shows them grace. And that's really the, the gospel in a nutshell, isn't it? That God has demonstrated grace, what? While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We offended him. We ran away from him. We violated his commandments. We built idols in our hearts. And instead of running away or moving forward to destroy, he gave his son in our place who died for us and rose again. I was reminded this week as I thought about this, you know, just if you think about times in your life where somebody hurt your feelings or said things about you that weren't true or damaged your reputation or whatever. I was, I was thinking actually about a bully that I remember from junior high. This kid was in the church youth group, and I can remember that feeling I had whenever I would show up, and he was there with his buddies, right? And he would make fun of like my clothes or my hair or whatever it might be. There was always something. And I was always tense and afraid of this kid. And then I would go home and I would think about him at night. But as I drifted to sleep at night, my thoughts of him were never, God, make his life fantastic. Bless him with good things and joy and harmony and a family that loves him. What were my thoughts? Smite him down. Right? Or they were like this, if I had power over him, wait till I'm bigger than he is. Right now, that wish never panned out. (laughs) But what if I was? What would I do? That's my heart. What is God's heart? Toward those who have offended, grace upon grace upon grace. Yeah, you can go to the idols. That's fine. And they might satisfy you for a little bit, year or two, 10 years, 15 years, but they're going to fail. And God is going to be true. So let me ask just a couple of quick questions as we close then. How do we, how do we identify and root out the idols in our hearts? Let me just ask three quick questions. Is there anything you say, ah, I can't live without it? If I didn't have this in my life, I'm not sure I could believe God is good. If God doesn't give me X, Y, or Z, I'm not sure that I can trust him. Is there anything in your heart you think, hey, God owes me? God, I did the right things. I was a good kid. I try to be nice to my family. I work hard. I don't cheat. I don't do whatever. Is there anything you say, God, you owe me? And is there a part of your life that you won't submit to God's authority? As you think about those questions and things pop into your mind, those are the idols you're going to be tempted to worship. All right, and the only solution is to do what Moses does. You grind them to dust. 
so they can never be reconstituted again. How do you do that? Through the grace of God. You say, God, I choose to trust in you alone. I choose to trust in the power of your spirit alone. Smash the idols in my heart. And let me trust in you. Let's pray as we close and, and as we pray. Here's, here's what I want to do. I just want to take 30 seconds and say, God, I want you to reveal the idols of my heart right now. Open me up. All right, nobody else right in this moment is going to know, but say, God, I, I want you to show me. What are they? Take just a moment. And Father, we pray that your spirit will continue working in our hearts. We know he's working now. Lord, there are things in our hearts that we, we cling to with a death grip. And yet you, you call to us and you say, life is found in me and my son alone. So let us hand over our idols. Father, we pray you would destroy them. And let us trust you. Give us the strength, Lord, to turn our hearts to worshiping you, to give you our time, our bodies, our families, even our theology and our political views, all of our hearts. You already own them. I pray we would trust and acknowledge your ownership over them day after day until we see with our eyes the fulfillment of your promise when Jesus returns. We thank you for this time. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.